0: Thank you, Mika. Just another expression of walking with Jesus, with one another, and into new places in this coming year. As we believe there is still kind of a long road ahead of us, I think that's becoming evident should have already been evident, but it continues, and we're reminded of it at just about every turn, and yet there is there is light at the end of the tunnel, right? There is hope. We we, we don't have that date circled on the calendar. That's probably what makes it the most difficult, is when we are waiting for something that has a date attached to it, we can align our lives uh, much more easily, it seems. But when it's that's kind of a moving target, it's difficult uh, for us to figure out what endurance and perseverance and resiliency looks like. So we are in this together, and the multiple ways of expressing that walking through this season and not alone is, is vital. So thank you for Mika stirred on that. I know many others are, are stirred and I know th- at least three of you are joining me on the Daily Walk Challenge. So thank you. Let's stick with it. We're into day number 10, double digits. How about that? I offered that, la- that tangible expression of following the ways of Jesus last week and invited invited you to participate in, in whatever capacity that looks like, not presuming that everyone has uh, both, but either the same capacity, uh, ability, or conviction, uh, but just to be exploring ways to follow Jesus. And one of his ways was walking. And so you can check that uh, that sermon out online if you missed it. But heading into the new year, I'm always looking for tangible ways to give legs to vision, so to speak, pun intended. I intended, um, I invited... The, 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 the challenge to daily walk as I post these daily videos inspired by the story of a walking people, an ancient story, walking with their God. We hinted at it earlier already, the, the ancient story of, of Israel being delivered from Egypt, walking in pursuit of their God, and then God coming to dwell with them as he was preparing them and establishing them uh, to really to bless all peoples of the earth, to fulfill, uh, the, to begin to fulfill the promise that he gave to his servant Abraham that we know is still being fulfilled ultimately in Christ our King and in God's presence now to all peoples through the Holy Spirit. So I thought I would take us back and slowly walk through that journey to ponder and pray as we are also slowly walking through the journey and the gospel of Mark, together to see our walking rabbi and to follow his ways. What we find in Jesus is that pace was important, and it was probably a slower pace when you reflect on the circumstances, the geography, the travel, and the distance that we looked at last week. The pace for Jesus was probably slower than we're used to, and maybe the world has already slowed down in some ways and sped up in others. And we're just trying to find the pace of the Holy Spirit and to walk with Him day by day or step by step. And no, it probably wasn't an efficient method of accomplishing a massive task to change the world in such little time. And yet Jesus did so with a slowed down pace, unhurried, where Rest was also important and vital. That's how he equipped his followers, grew them spiritually. And maybe we shouldn't dismiss the simple and basic things when it comes to following the, way, the actual ways of Jesus. If we want to grow spiritually, perhaps done with intentionality, they are the most profound. Now, I do want to be clear that walking is not a vision. It's an expression. The vision ultimately never changes when our vision is to become more like Jesus, to follow His ways, to represent Him in the world, to extend His kingdom. Vision comes when there's, when there's tangible expression that we can foresee, that we can envision of how those things are accomplished. Not just when, when one is alone as an individual, but when a community grows to follow Jesus, to devote all to Him and to represent Him in sacrificial ways. And then we start to have vision of what that could mean for a place, a community, a region. When God, when God, his spirit empowers many, and that seems to spread, that's when we see a greater renewal, if not revival, take place. But we're not dependent. We're, we're not, we're not responsible to make the revival happen. We are responsible to be faithful to daily walk after Him in simple ways and allow His Spirit to empower and to work in and through us however He will. So let's be clear that walking is not the vision, it's the expression, especially when there seems to be a long road ahead, a journey that seems daunting. I had someone politely say that there is no way that I'll be able to fulfill walking daily and posting daily videos. And, And to be honest, thinking about 365 of those is daunting. And so I'm not thinking about 365. I'm not thinking about December, September, July, or even February. I'm thinking about today. And doing so today is not daunting. And that's the perspective that God has invited me to take, is what is today? And I am thinking a little bit about tomorrow as far as my planning goes, but that's ultimately about it. And that's given me such freedom, and I invite you to do the same. That's how we journey together, and I believe journey far, right? The old African proverb come, comes to mind. If you, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. There's a, different, there's a different pace to distance and to travel. There's a meta-narrative to the whole scripture that I think is, is seen in that pace, and that's the, the kingdom expansion. God's kingdom expands slowly, ultimately, Day by day, step by step into the lives of his people, it, it expands. Sometimes there's rapid increases. But ultimately, if you look throughout history, it's over decades or centuries that the kingdom moves and the kingdom expands. And so pace is, is important. And we see that narrative running throughout Scripture. And really, for the first followers of Jesus, we see, we'll see this again and again. They were pretty slow to understand the kingdom that Jesus said was at hand. They were slow to grasp it fully, though they were, they were faithful to at least begin walking and journeying. As we jump back into Mark chapter 2 and continue our slow journey through, you'll, we'll, we'll jump into the pa- paragraph that we somewhat skipped over last week that we could reflect on Jesus, the walking rabbi, while he was walking with his disciples on a detour through the grain fields, making their own way, that that pace was unhurried. We skipped over a paragraph. Taking us back into December, we looked at the extended kind of beginning of the, the gospel according to Mark, this, this declaration, this treatise that Mark was writing likely to a Roman audience in Rome, and he was declaring who Jesus was. There was probably simply misunderstanding, confusion, or even controversy over who this Jesus was and this new sect of followers of this man who they were claiming was the Messiah, the promised one, the king. That would have been countercultural for Romans, who the only the only king, the only godlike figure was Caesar himself. And so we look at this extended passage in detail because the way Mark begins is, is symbolic, is emblematic, and is very, very important for who he's declaring Jesus to be. And there were four major accounts all around the healing that Jesus brought into people's lives. They were these scenes or snapshots and We're going slowly through Mark, but Mark is ultimately, if you just sit down and read it, it's a fast-paced, urgent kind of message. The word immediately that's translated in many of our English translations shows up 42 times. And then immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. it's, It's meant to build this urgency. And so we see these quick snapshots in scenes, but what they reveal is ultimately that Jesus comes to bring healing. And his, the physical healings, the miracles that he bring were, were evidence of the deeper spiritual healing that he came to bring. And that all came together when he said to the, the paralyzed man on the mat before him who clearly came and his friends brought him for physical healing because they heard of, of Jesus the healer and these miraculous works and they had nowhere else to turn. But what did he turn and say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. He brought him inner spiritual healing. And then with all the grumbling and the doubt, because who could forgive sins but God alone? Jesus said, so that you know I have that authority, rise up and walk. And he brought him wholeness and fullness and declared in that sign, ultimately he came to bring his full healing to all humanity, to those who knew they were sick and in need and had nowhere else to turn for hope and help. And that's ultimately what he says to the complaints, to the arguments against him. In, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There was some double meaning in there that we looked at. But ultimately, Jesus came to heal and deliver those who knew they were sick and in need and had nowhere else to turn. And this is who we see him spending his time with, the hopeless the helpless, those that needed holistic healing, those that knew they could find it in nothing on the earth. That's who came to him and flocked to him. That's who he then dwelt with and pursued and ate with. We see it emblematically in the calling of Levi, the tax collector. There's a redemption story there. See, for a Jew to become a tax collector and ultimately work for the Roman government, the Roman empire, to make money, they had to Extract as much tax as they could, pay what was due to the emperor, and keep whatever was left over. They were considered like a traitor to betray their fellow Jews in order to live in relative luxury. They were often outcast and marginalized. For Jesus to call Levi the tax collector to follow him as a Jewish rabbi was 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 unheard of, was almost as blasphemous as the things that they heard Jesus claiming about himself being the Messiah. And so they railed against Jesus, and yet Jesus spent his time with the marginalized, the least, the last, and the lost. He brought them healing and ultimately redemption and purpose. Now we jump into this next account, this paragraph that we skipped over in Mark chapter 2, 18 and following. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Because no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away from it the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, because if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Just offer one observation this morning, which I think is timely for us as we are moving into a new year, and that's this, that Jesus brings renewal. Jesus brings renewal. Isn't that, isn't that good news for us? As we are longing for change, as we are longing for renewal and restoration of so much that is lost, we see Jesus bringing renewal. Now, he's being challenged by the religious elite, ultimately, because he's, he's not fitting the mold, right? He's not following the customs and the norms of a Jewish rabbi. Fasting, I, th- I think we understand that relatively as a principle. It actually is uh, much more broad than, than a Hebrew or a Christian tradition. It goes through multiple cultures throughout history. Fasting of food is primarily what we're talking about, though many would fa- fasted from food and drink and at different rhythms and times. But primarily fasting is to deny oneself. And if you've ever had any rhythm of fasting, even for a meal you know that it, it disrupts rhythm. It makes you, it, it changes the way you feel immediately. And it's a reminder of, of hopefully, an intentionality. That's ultimately what the phys, as we can try to connect physical to spiritual, it was meant to be a personal exercise and discipline, primarily though we see communities engaged together in it. But primarily in the time of Jesus, Jesus would reframe it and say, fasting, when you fast, it's, it's simply for you. Don't Don't broadcast it for anyone else to see. And so if we take that as a personal response and discipline at times, and the times that that I regularly have fasted, both whether for a meal, a day, or multiple days, it is an immediate reminder, a discomfort, a disruption that reminds me of, of something that I'm trying to pursue spiritually. A reminder to pray, a reminder of there's something missing and longing that I'm longing for a reminder to pray into that. Lord, may it be. May you come and fill and renew. It's such a rich rhythm. But In the times of Jesus' day, fasting had become like a, a show. The Pharisees were known to fast twice a day and to make it known to all, or twice a week, all day long, and make it known to all. And so to try to be as holy as you could, you kind of had to keep up with the, with the leaders of that chase. And so as Jesus' disciples are not fasting at all, it's obvious there's something different, there's something unique happening. And so he's being questioned, if not challenged, of why they are not fasting in the normal way. Jesus was upsetting norms and traditions, and that's what he is speaking against here. The, the, the Hebrew scriptures, what we might call the Old Testament, I have a Jewish rabbi friend who said, please don't call it old because that makes it sound like the new is better. And I appreciate that. So I have often called it the First Testament, the First Testament of God. And we we look into the Second Testament or the, the Next Testament that we might call the New Testament, not to make new better than, than old. But in the First Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, it seems there was only one time of year where God's people were somewhat prescribed to fast, leading up to the Day of Atonement. And on that day, before they would feast, they were meant to deny themselves and to fast. Just one time a year. It had grown from there. There were plenty of expressions of people and and leaders leading people into fasting for repentance and for longing for God's presence. But those weren't prescribed as a, you must do this at this time in this way. So it was very little evidence of the kind of fasting that the Pharisees of that day were engaged in to look more holy and, and more devout. So it became become a show, and Jesus says no to that demonstration. And he, then he claims the reason behind it of who he is. He doesn't say that, that fasting is wrong. In fact, he says there will be a time to fast. In the Sermon on the Mount that I referenced earlier, he said when, when you fast, do it this way. So he expects there's a rhythm of fasting, that it's actually a good discipline. But there's no prescription around how long or how much or when. It's a personal relationship. He claims to be the, the groom, the bridegroom, like the husband. That imagery is maybe jarring and striking to us. But he's drawing from the First Testament where God alone was, was described as the groom or the husband in relationship to his people, Israel, who were often called the bride. And God himself had entered into a covenant relationship with his people. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Faithfulness for God's people was described like a marriage relationship, like a covenant. When they would be fully devoted to their spouse, their groom, their husband. It was a a metaphor that could be understood. And unfaithfulness for God's people, whether it was simply dismissing God, doubting him, distrusting him, or full-blown idolatry or idol worship, it was often described as adultery. That was the image given when there was unfaithfulness for God's people. And so this is what Jesus is drawing on. He's using this metaphor, claiming it in himself, that there will be a time when the groom, the groom is not with you, And you will long and you will lament. But right now he is here. He is here with you. This is a time for feasting and celebration. I love that image and that picture. Is that not good news? For all the religious weight that sometimes can be pressed upon us, Jesus comes to bring renewal, to bring celebration, to bring feasting, to bring joy. That's what his kingdom is intended to be for his people. Ultimately, it is not yet fulfilled. It was being fulfilled. But Jesus says, that's that's what I want for my followers, is to feast with me, to celebrate with me the renewal that God is at work doing. It's, it's a wedding and not a funeral. Weddings in that culture, by the way, were often week-long celebrations that would just kind of crescendo along the week of eating and drinking and dancing. It was like vacation. Does that sound nice, especially now when we've, We've all longed for and missed those kinds of galvanizing community celebrations. And so this would be a time to fast. As Rachel brought us a place for lament. It's a season that we continue to be and to create that space. Because what we long for that should be in life in the kingdom is not in so many ways. So we fast, we discipline, we long, we lament. Because one day God is bringing that restoration and that healing and that fullness He's going to restore all things. Now, this is pretty striking. Just as Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, grabbing that phrase from the prophet Daniel, which we looked at a few weeks ago, and and the Jews didn't miss it. They knew exactly what he was claiming because that was only a sign to the Messiah. Here he is claiming to be the bridegroom, the groom, the husband, that only God had that title and that role. And it was not lost on the Pharisees' And the religious elite who continued to grow in anger, frustration, claiming, believing that he's claiming blasphemy, and he must therefore be removed and dealt with. There were severe consequences. Jesus then switches metaphors, giving encouragement to preachers everywhere. He used two different analogies, cloth and wine, simple things that can have such powerful meanings. And we love that in Jesus, that they understood what he was saying, but then trying to connect it to the meaning was often lost on them. Jesus, just tell us more. What did you mean? I mean, reveal to us the deeper truth. We know there's so much here. Just like we would read this, and I think we grasped both of the images. Maybe the wine and the wineskin was a little more of a stretch for us, but cloth, for you wearing wool today or used to having a new wool garment and then washing it? You know what happens. After those first few times, it needs to find its full form, Right? So if you tried to patch, if, if that wool garment tore and you were trying to patch it with another piece of wool, if that, and you sewed that in and that, and that piece of wool was a brand new piece of wool and you go to wash it again, what happens? That piece shrinks, tears at the stitches, makes the whole worse. So I think we all even moderately could grasp that analogy. in, in, in Jesus' day, it was probably more quickly grasped even than in our non-woolen wearing days but we understand what he's at least saying in it. And the second metaphor is he switches to the wine and the wine skins. He's, he's ultimately saying that given the same point with another illustration. Maybe you have tried to make wine or some other fermented drink, but doubtful you put it into the skin of an animal, which was kind of a common thing for, to hold that wine and preserve it because the skin of an animal, like a goat skin, could be malleable and flexible and so as that new wine was put in it would continue to ferment and the gases would be released and that skin would need to be stretched we need to be able to be stretched until it was done in the process of ferment fermenting so now if you took that skin poured you used out the wine took that old skin and put new wine in it again it had hardened and solidified and those gases would burst and erupt and all the wine would be lost It was obvious to the first hearers. I think we can grasp it to a point, even if that's not our reality. It was obvious to them what he was saying. But the deeper meaning may have been lost on them because Jesus is claiming something in himself, in, in his establishing of the new kingdom and what he had come to bring, that the old structures would not contain it. Now, this is where we might miss it. and I've heard it misinterpreted that Jesus is coming against the law and the Hebrew scriptures. He is not. He's coming against their traditions, the traditions of the religious elite, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah, all the things that had been built upon the law to try to understand it more. I, I, I want to I give good intention to those leaders to say, this isn't clear. There's not enough here. What does it actually look like and mean in our life? And, and, and together they, they collected a tradition's. And they taught those, those equal almost with the scriptures that this is what it looks like to follow God and to be faithful. We'll press into some of those examples, the traditions taught around the practice of the Sabbath next week. There's very little actually given on Sabbath rest. So they needed to come up with more rules and restrictions to understand what it actually meant to rest, to not break the Sabbath. Hopefully the intention was to honor God and to be faithful to Him. But you know how easy it is to make rules that simply become religion and become a weight, become an oppression. And, and in that day, there was so much prescribed about how to follow the law that it was oppressive and almost impossible unless you lived at that Pharisaic level. If you were a commoner, a laborer, interacting in business and life, you could not maintain it. You couldn't be ceremonially clean. You couldn't follow all of the law. And imagine the weight that came upon you that... I just don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I fail every day and I'm reminded of it. And my only hope of God not judging me is, is to bring an offering and a sacrifice and lowly repentance. There's just this crushing weight that can come upon, upon you from the religious, religious elites. And, and that's ultimately, we, we have done that too throughout Christianity leaders that say, maybe out of good intention, it must look like this, and they lay a weight that was never intended. That is what Jesus is breaking against. These forms, these structures have become rigid, and I'm coming to bring renewal and freedom. Living with me is freedom. It is joy. It is more like a feast than a funeral. And those old structures can no longer contain what I am going to do in and through my people. That's what he's coming to break against, not to abolish the law of God and the scriptures. He's come to fulfill it, he declares. Now that's still deeply unsettled, those religious elites who thought they were more holy and closer to God by following all of those ways. When Jesus is now saying to their way of life, it does not matter. That does not draw you closer to God. The kingdom is here in his hand. It is walking spiritually with me. As I point you to God, our Father, to the marriage metaphor again, to be faithful, to enjoy the fullness of the relationship, we must give ourselves wholly to our spouse. There must be no wavering or giving our heart to another person or thing. And Jesus reveals that that is what the relationship with him would look like then we are unwavering and, and devoted to Him fully, not giving our heart and attention to any other thing. This is actually not a burden, but a joy, not a limitation, but a freedom. A life of sacrifice is actually one that leads to the life of abundance. That's what He's saying, to be pure of heart. Now, sometimes our earthly comforts and our securities and our pleasures are taken from us and stripped from us. We can probably all relate to that in this extended season that we're in. Is that any easier than laying them down on our own accord? The things that we put our our trust and our worth and our value, our hope and our security into. oftentimes when we are we are we recognize that they are ultimately unfulfilling and empty to lay them down on our own accord, I find is is far more difficult than having them just removed from me. And yet it is far less painful in the end to come willingly and to break from it. We are in a really unique time where where all of these false senses, false things of hope and security, the foundation of them has been shaken at minimum, if not completely crumbled. And that's not a bad thing for us to see the futility of them, and if they are neutral things in themselves that ultimately we have come to put our trust, hope, or worship into, to ascribe worth to, then either may they be broken or may they be added back in in a way that does not confine our hearts. So collectively, we are in an incredible cultural moment to be renewed in Jesus, and revitalized in the season ahead. Perhaps we can find comfort and hope knowing that Jesus is rather fond of change. For most of us, change is, is difficult, to say the least. But it is all about perspective, isn't it? Change, big change, change in life circumstances is feared is, is something to be anxious over or to fret over, especially when times seem relatively good or at least rhythms are in place. On the flip side, when things are hard, when there's difficulty, when there's loss, when there's longing like we're all experiencing, change to something else, even if it was rolling the dice, that it could or couldn't be better, I'm going to roll those dice. Because change we are longing for. Jesus is rather fond of Change. Jesus is inviting us to live in a progressive kingdom where more and more his kingdom is established on earth. It's how he taught us to pray. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He would not invite us to pray and to long for something that he is not wanting to fulfill in our very midst. God's kingdom is one that progresses and moves, ultimately not promised here on earth until he comes to rule and to reign and restore all things. So again, we can misplace our trust The progressive, secular, utopian myth has completely crumbled. And may it be forever. Our hope in the progressive expansion of the fullness of God's kingdom for all peoples, that it would be firmly established and rooted in this season. I hope we are way past longing to go back to what was. Not that all those rhythms were wrong, but to say we have a God who is leading us forward into something that is new and he promises ultimately is greater in his kingdom. And so may our eyes be fixed on him. He does so in such an upside down kind of way where less seems to be more. Pace is vitally important and it is unhurried and rest is required. Even when we come to see there's so much more to do. Those things should ultimately be helpful and healing for us. And again, tune in next week as we start to explore what Sabbath rest can really look like in our lives and in this time. If we are longing for renewal of all things, good, Jesus brings it. But we must be willing to trust His words, follow His ways, and to live in this upside-down kind of way, to repent which we looked at at the beginning of of this series a number of times. The word repentance, according to Mark, is a change of mind, metanoia, to change one's thinking, which results in a change of action. To say, I was thinking this way, that this would be right, it is wrong, I am changing my mind and moving in a different direction. We are meant to always be a people of repentance, reflecting where we've taken thoughts, ideas, or paths that are ultimately leading us away from God and his will to say, no, I changed my mind to trust your word, God. So may we be a people of repentance even today as we turn and respond and move in faithful pursuit of him as we go. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond with some sustained singing. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is tangible because of Jesus. You have shown us what it looks like to live in this world, to be oppressed and opposed from all directions, and yet to be faithful as, you, as we tune our mind and our heart to you. Thank you for surprising us again and again as we look to you. you. You unsettle us to our ways, our thoughts, and our pursuits to come back to who you are. And you do so very simply that we can grasp And yet with such depth that we can continue to meditate and dive deep and explore more and more of who you are and what you intend of walking in your kingdom. Lord, help us to primarily put our our hope and our trust in you alone and not other things. You alone save and deliver. We want to walk with you into your kingdom and expand your kingdom wherever you would send us. Help us to be people of repentance, of changed mind, and therefore of confession. Lord, we thought, we've thought wrongly, we've acted wrongly, and recipients again of your grace and mercy, healing and restoration. And let us be people of worship, ascribing worth to you and you alone. In your name, Jesus, we pray to God our Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.